Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Lady Audacity Tea. I'm Alex. And I'm Meredith. And before we get started, we have our next Patreon Apple subscription episode for August. And it is Miss Wallace Simpson, if you're nasty. And <laughs> the conversation, listen, we are reading books for this. I bought an out of print diary on Lord Beaverbrook. And I got in touch mm-hmm. with some of the authors of biographies written about Wallace. And let's just say there is someone that does not mince words with how she feels about someone else's portrayal. I said, oh boy, she did not save this for the burn book. It's going to be so amazing. Link in the show notes if you want to join our Patreon. Also, shout out to our Lady Whistledown tier, $25 tier, HRH Duchess Normal. Normal. Oh my God. I hope she doesn't hear this. I'm she's sorry. Like yeah, she's normal. Else. You know what? She's not normal. She's sensational. <laughs> she's HRH Duchess Nora Barbie. So thank, thank you, you, Nora, Duchess. for being a subscriber. And also we need to thank our, our Patreon and Apple subscription yes, people because Alex, can you let the people know our news? So we have hired an editing company to help us out with our podcast. We are so excited. And literally the reason we are able to do this is because of our paid subscribers on Patreon. Like, thank you guys so much. We are so excited. I mean, talk. we're like literally investing in all aspects into this podcast because we love it so much. And we love talking to you guys. It's been so fun. Thank you. Yeah, we are so professional. We are so professional. <laughs> we both have our button downs on today. We are like, okay. we're the working women, okay? Stumbled we're out working. of bed and I tumbled in the kitchen. <laughs> Little Dolly. <laughs> it feels very cool to say, oh, we're going to send it to our editors. But honestly, oh thank gosh, you guys. Yes. Thank you. Apple, Patreon. Thank you so much for subscribing to our content. This is honestly like where the money goes is improving the show and giving yes. you guys a better product. We have, we just had a little team meeting, a quarterly meeting, I'm just going to call it yeah. because <laughs> it was just us talking on the phone, but mm-hmm. we have some really exciting things we're planning for the next couple of months into the new year. So stay tuned for that. So before we get into our interview with Miss Christine Wells, let's catch up a little bit. First, we need to talk about Dan Wooten. Wooten. I have such a hard time saying his name and I'm getting roasted on TikTok because I turn into this Cockney thing. I'm like, Dan Wooten. Like, I'm just like swallowing vowels. I've confused myself so much. I don't know what this man's name is. We're just going to call him Dan Dan the Dirty Man. So as of this recording, Dan is still on air for GB News railing against the Sussex squad because, you know, focus on the real problem. His Daily Mail column has been paused and he Mm -hmm. also has new legal representation. So either that fundraiser, that slush fund didn't work out and he had to get cheaper representation, but I don't know. I, yeah, you go on Alex. GB News too. I just saw that his ratings are tanking. They have tanked. It's going to be delicious. Very right. Very interesting to see where he is just at the end of August. 
I mean, I think GB News is going to hold on to him and he'll hold on to them. But at some point, if the ratings are just diving and it's just you're not helping us out, I've, advertisers might start pulling out. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. <laughs> it couldn't happen to a nicer man. So we're just going to quickly go. <laughs> we're just going to quickly go over some of the articles that have come out recently since we did our two part episode. Go back and listen to it. We got into all of Byline Times investigation into Dan. So on July 28th, another part of the series comes out. And this is this is about the Sun and the Mail knowing the claims against Dan before Byline Times came out with their investigation, which is so hypocritical when you think about the Sun's defense of their BBC coverage of the Hugh Edwards scandal from July 13th. Here's what they said to defend their decision to do that while knowing this Dan information. They said, a desperate couple approached us with firm evidence that he was paying large sums to a young person with a spiraling drug addiction and that the star had been sent sexual pictures. But police said nothing could be done. And despite a detailed complaint to the BBC, it did nothing either. What do our critics, especially Mr. Edwards, pious media friends, think we should have done? Told the family to shove off, turned a blind eye to what appeared to be a clear abuse of power by a household name? Huh. Rehehe. <laughs> Healing. There's so much to really say now. about that one. It's just it. Oh, and I think it's true. It's them being on a high kettle. horse. Yeah, it's just them, them being on a high horse. I think is the main thing because my thing when it comes to the BBC story, I think there's a lot to look into that and a lot of angles to look at. But the fact of the matter is, the Sun has another story like this, and we have a lot more evidence that clear makes it clear he exploited and abused people, and they will not report. That's the issue with the side of the Daily Mail. It's like when it's your own people, it's zip. Nope. 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 And I also think to some extent, there's a certain amount of just gumption in feeling like, you know, the byline is looking into this. You know that they have presented you with information. They have gone to the Met and you still feel confident enough in your position to run full steam ahead with the Hugh Edwards stuff and ignore the yes. Dan stuff. I mean, yes, that is a lot of gumption. Yeah. Don't talk to me about how you're, you know, free media and we bring the hard hitting stories and we have to pay a pro. No, 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 no. You know, the sun <laughs> is uh, famously for the people. You know? Famously <laughs> for the people. So if that was about, you know, the way that the sun and the Daily Mail knew, the next scene that Byline Times paints for us is August 1st. And this is when... Alex speaks out. So that was Dan's former partner who finds that treasure trove of information in Dan's flat when he's cat sitting, which is honestly perfect. I, I'm like, I don't, I didn't know Dan was cat sitting, but it feels right. So what I actually find interesting is, and this might just be interesting for me, to be honest, is that apparently like the way that Dan, not Dan, the way that Alex found stuff is he was looking for a dosing ball for the washing up powder, washing up powder. And he put his <laughs> hand down the side of the washing machine. And there was like a bag that had one of those travel padlocks on it, but it could like, it was like scrunched in there. I thought honestly that Dan was doing like some spy kid stuff and had a secret compartment behind his washing yeah. machine, but it's not that at all. I thought it was like a built in. You got a safe? Like, no, he just got like a freaking bag. He got like a gym bag so with a lock. It's, I get, I mean, I guess when you work at the set of the daily mail, again, you're above everyone. You're untouchable. So Dumb criminal. Okay. Dumb criminal. Dumb criminal. So what we find out is we really get Alex's side of the story of 
the man who was approached by Martin Branning to make all that sexual content in order to get close to his partner who was an employee of The Sun and got that sex tape that was filmed without consent. This is Alex's side of the story on that. But he also talks about how the Murdoch work environment was kind of perfect for someone like Dan. And what he says was working for Murdoch, that environment, which was very ruthless, very cutthroat, very competitive for the biggest stories changed him. It enabled the worst parts of him Mm. and amplified them. And so he really talks about how, yes, this is the kind of environment that Dan was working in, but you also have to be ripe for that kind of work and have a part of you that is so broken that you're willing to do anything for a story. And that's like, that's Dan. Yeah. Like he was the perfect person to hire because he already had that. And I'm glad that he talks about the environment he was in while still giving him agency. Yes, I totally agree. And the other thing we find out surprisingly is that Dan is center, center left, and his parents are too. And so Alex never saw him going far right. I am not surprised Me that people either. like Dan. Yeah. And even people like Piers Morgan that weren't necessarily hard conservative at the beginning. These are people that do not have a moral compass that are willing mm-hmm. to do anything for a story. And if the money is in hard, alt-right caricatures exactly. of screaming angry men that's what they're gonna do they They go for the money yeah they go for the money and this stuff has always kind of been right there in their past but now it's popular so they're like yay i can be extreme too popular i know it's it's like that that is listen you're gonna go where the money is when you have no scruples or morals and exactly it really does bring into question where is the journalism here exactly and i really think Um, it's it's a further a referendum on the media ecosystem particularly the murdoch empire yeah so really quickly august 3rd rolls around and this section i would like to call dumb criming where essentially because of a data breach with certain websites All this information became public knowledge about passwords and byline times and and the work of security experts figure out that the same passwords for Maria Joseph and Martin Branning were also used for a sketchy sounding now defunct DVD website. And like statistically, they bring in a statistician and statistically the chances of this combination is like near impossible. If you're going to do crimes, if you're going to be criming on the Internet, change your passwords Come on, like, do I have to teach you everything? Oh my gosh, this man. Like, and again, I don't like to throw around the word narcissism because it just gets thrown around too much by people. But sometimes with Dan, I truly think, because it's like dumb and also it's just like, you never thought you would be caught. And I nope. think even so, I even if people knew about it, you would never go down for it because you have Murdoch behind you. You have News UK behind you. It's just like, I don't know. I don't, I know he's dumb, but he's also smart. So I'm like, narcissism, dude. Like you just really thought that much of yourself. (laughs) Alex, it's, it's to have the confidence of a mediocre white man. (laughs) What a thing. I know, right? Is it narcissism or just being a mediocre white man? (laughs) Just being a white man. Okay. (laughs) All the time. So listen, that was bananas, but we still have bananas articles because I mean, the fun never stops with the British media. Oh yeah. Alex stops. is doing a little dance, dance in the library. Okay. This one. You know, I love people talking shit about this in the voice notes. <laughs> so, She's so ready to talk to somebody else about this. Alex, <laughs> take it away. Take it away with your bananas article okay. of the week. So I got to give a teensy bit of a background here, which I will go more into, you know, on our social medias. 
But this all started because on May 3rd, Susie Minkus, who is a fashion editor and OBE holder, made not so nice comments about Kate and her relationship with jewelry. So this was for a podcast. And again, this happened on May 5th when these, actually, yes, May 5th when she made these comments. It wasn't though until July 26th that the Daily Mail pretty much unearthed these comments for an article. I'm guessing royals are on summer vacation. They're bored. Here we go. So they unearth these comments and people are upset. It gets kind of big in the British tabloid media. And then by July 27th, we have a rebuttal article from The Telegraph by Tamara Abraham. And it's titled, The Real Reason the Princess of Wales Wears Cheap Jewelry. So, yeah. Within the first like two, three paragraphs, I was like, okay, here is two bananas for bananas. Because what are we doing? (laughs) So it pretty much starts with rolling back literally a decade worth of Kate and Queen, how much Queen Elizabeth II respected Kate, which is why she got so much access to the royal vault, to say that Kate rarely got access. Abraham writes, ever since she arrived at St. James Palace in November 2010 with the late Princess Diana's engagement ring on her finger, the Princess of Wales has been afforded rare access to the historic jewelry in the royal vaults. Okay, rare. They use the word rare, you guys. I'm just pointing that out. I'm highlighting this. (laughs) And then they go on to list like five pieces that she has worn. And then it goes on to say, it sounds like a lot, and the collected value of those pieces is millions of pounds. But over the course of 11 years as a working royal, it is it's a relatively modest selection. Okay, so yeah, if we're pretending like she only has five pieces that have been lent to her, that would be very modest and it would be rare. But that's just not true. There's a People article from 2022 that actually t- lists all of the jewelry that Kate has worn that the Queen Elizabeth II has worn. And mind you, this is only jewelry that she's gotten from the vault. Queen Elizabeth II has worn. So Diana's pieces, the Queen's mother's pieces, all of those things are not on this list. And there's still 13 pieces of jewelry. 13 pieces of jewelry. This they is can't count the telegraph. <laughs> right? I mean, they can't count over is... there. They also got it wrong. Archie's place in the line of succession when they did an article about his fourth birthday. Numbers someone are really is tough challenged over there. by numbers. And as someone who doesn't like numbers either, I get it. But fact check, boo boo. Back check. Okay. Seriously. <laughs> and in 2023, she's gone at least like four to five new pieces. I would say a few under King Charles. And like we said, the emerald piece that Diana made famous, the Princess of Wales, that's just not, that's not any lint. Okay. She got that piece for a big moment. And that was a big moment. I remember saying Queen King Charles may not like them and the attention they get, but he's also not dumb. And he knows Kate needs some jewels. And on top of that, not only has like the quantity been pretty high, but the quality, especially when Queen Elizabeth II was alive. One of the ones actually listed in the People article is the Pearl Drop brooch. And it's what Kate wore. Yeah, that's the one that she wore for Kate and William's most recent portrait. And that was the Queen's most worn brooch. Like it was known that she really loved that brooch. It was actually affectionately called, they say, the Duchess of Cambridge. So... Again, it's like, it's just not connecting. And then the second big one for me, again, I'm like, this is bananas. This is freaking banana, B-A-N-A. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> the song is getting stuck in my head. They go on then to talk about how a lot of this too, why she's maybe not dipping into the world vault is not only because new people, you know, have control over it and they get to tell her what she gets to wear, but also because she wants to be culturally sensitive to the conversations going on around around right now about how a lot of these jewels were stolen. 
just straight up trolling. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, sure. Sure. And mind you, this little section is after they talk about her love for Suzanne jewelry, which is a French owned brand by white women. And they made headlines, I think in 2018, because they just decided to exploit indigenous people by having them model for all of their ads and their website with pieces they made inspired by this culture. They didn't pay those women. They never told them they were going to be used for ad space or that they were pretty much ripping off their jewelry to sell for double the price. In White women, ways, am I right? Okay, we're just being so culturally sensitive, Kate. <laughs> so... Abraham writes when giving examples about the times that other royals have gotten in trouble because we found it out the province or the who of their jewelry. Of course, they talk about Megan, but there can be a more sensitive issue at play. The province of jewelry can be a thorny issue for royals, as we saw when the Duchess of Sussex wore a pair of diamond earrings during the royal tour of New Zealand, Fiji, and Tongo in 2018. Palace aides initially claimed that the earrings were borrowed, but it later emerged that they were a gift from Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, who was accused of ordering the assassination of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi. It's okay. It's a hard oh, I one. said that pretty well, though. Khashoggi. Okay. It was really good. Remember, <laughs> Alex has dyslexia. She's I'm doing equal. It. Don't I'm be doing all, it. uncool about it. Okay. We're doing it live. <laughs> And then it goes on to say, ethical questions aside, gifts from other heads of state remain the property of the crown, not the recipient. So, again, she's saying that Kate and her longtime assistant, Silish Natasha Archer, are likely being very careful that she doesn't wear jewelry that might raise awkward questions. And all I'm going to say there is big round of hypocrisy. Because the thing about is awkward questions were raised and conversations were rightly have about that piece of jewelry because the palace gave us that information. It was actually pointed out then by Gert Royals that it was very, very shocking to see them release that information because that information too wasn't released until I think 2020 before the Oprah interview actually. So the palace oh. kept this information quiet like they always do until the Oprah interview happened and they just started releasing all of this stuff. So the only reason Kate has never had to have these awkward conversation and questions raised around her is because the palace has not given us information a lot on a lot of her jewels. There's many examples of this, but one that I'm thinking of was in 2022 during the Caribbean tour. She wore those like beautiful tassel earrings that we all know Queen Elizabeth II loves. And the thing about those earrings, guys, we don't know the province. We don't know who gave them to her. We know nothing about it. So awkward conversations and questions can't be raised when we're not being, being given the information to ask them. And again, bananas. It's bananas. But I have to say, I'm going to have to disagree with you on this. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't okay, let's go. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm rolling up my okay. sleeves. <laughs> okay. I, I'm taking up my hoops because I'm from Jersey. I understand that, you know, you might think that this is a misstep, but did you know that William and Kate are giving a masterclass in image branding and it's leaving Harry and Meghan in the shade? Because that is a literal <laughs> headline from the Express UK. Exclusive. Oh. Prince William and Prince Kate have been doing everything right and their image branding continues to glow as the Prince of Wales is set to make his first official visit to New York City to repair the earth. My mouth dropped, guys. Why do we always have to be so dramatic about William and what he's actually doing? 
I literally was like, shut the fuck up. Prepare the earth. If a royal takes a misstep in the woods and no journalist reports on it, did the misstep even happen? The way this article relies on you not remembering the way the media plays a role in branding and yes. that the, the status of William and Kate as future king and queen also plays a role in how they are covered is, mm-hmm. I mean, the oh my God, the yeah. lack of self-reflection is so real. My other thing is too, to your point, you know, how is William going to have time to repair the earth when he's also trying to end homelessness in five years in the UK? And has he finished his mission to solve Middle Eastern peace that apparently was happening a couple of years ago? I mean, how does he find the time? I'll how never, does he find the time? How does he find the time? And I'll never forget during that whole solving peace in the Middle East is when his Twitter was talking something about terrorism and, you know, counteracting it. And they put up a photo and it looks like pretty much it just looks like a village and black people are walking around. And it was exposed that that literally was just like a random village and people walking around going about their business. Oh, no. He did the Google but, thing. Yeah. Yeah, they oh. did that one. They did that one. Also, you want to see terrorism? So awesome. <laughs> Let's talk about domestic white terrorism <laughs> that we don't like I'm to like, talk you about. Sorry, random white people. By the way, I'm just saying, like, you could have just got a shot. This could have gone a lot of different <laughs> ways. It's like if you search angry people and you see a lot of black people come back exactly. in your Google search, and not white people. I was like, huh. great. Well, William. anyway, <laughs> I guess we'll see what Williams next. It's he's honestly like the Kendall. It's like I'm sport. I'm astronaut. <laughs> I've, you know what I mean? I'm like, these are not tangible goals. These are this right? is wild. Except he would be the annoying kin that wants to be at all. So all the other kins wouldn't like him because he would constantly be trying to like take their mojo. He's like, I'm beach. I'm surfer though. This is this is my oh, mojo dojo house. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was absolutely wonderful. Now on to our interview with Christine Wells. We are very excited to have the next guest on our show. Christine Wells writes historical fiction featuring strong, fascinating women. Her latest novel, The Royal Windsor Secret, is coming out on September 12th. It follows a young woman seeking to discover the truth about her mysterious past. Could she be the secret daughter of the Prince of Wales? We don't know. We will find out. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, we're not going to give it away, but welcome, Christine, to Lady Audacity. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Thank you. We are thrilled. We are thrilled. Books are our love language. Alex and I, the number of times we were texting back and forth about your book, it shows, I mean, we read it for the podcast, but we would have read it just for fun. It is. (laughs) 
we read it really fast. It was fast. so good. I finished it in like two days because I had to know what happened. Meredith finished it before me, which I got to try to like get some secrets out from her because I'm just saying, you know how to write a slow burn first and foremost, because I know a lot of ladies out there, men, theys, and thems are going to be asking, "Give what's the rom-com like? <sighs> angsty that's all i'm gonna say you like the angst i can tell because brody and cleo just okay i was like meredith let me know please i can't take this anymore <laughs> but it also a part of how amazing they were one of the things that just i loved and i'm so enamored by was how well you're able to weave in the facts with the fictional characters and stories like, I feel like Lady and Lord Grayson, which are both fictional characters, I love how I feel like you use them as tools to almost see how those set of like aristocrats responded to so many things going on around them. And one of this, one of them, of course, is Wallace Simpson. Like, I know these are fictional characters, but the feelings they express about her and like that nickname of that woman very much reflects what we know, how Wallace's peers felt about her. And then you get more into it. And there's specific characterization for this plot near the end is when Cleo once again sees them. And it's during like the height of World World II. And obviously, I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just stopping there. I know. I, I can sometimes spill spoilers, but I promise I will not. <laughs> but what I found very interesting about the characterization because... Just to put it frank, they're giving spoiled brat like throughout it. I have like the Khloe Kardashian voice in my head, like people are dying, Wallace and Edward. Okay, people are dying. <laughs> so I was really wondering, like, was that kind of like your own, you know, artistic embellishments, or is that did you get that characterization from things that you were reading about them? I actually there's a an anecdote that I have told before, but I'll tell it again, and it's true. Wallace Simpson, you know, the war had started, the Nazis were occupying Paris where the, both Wallace and the, he was the Duke of Windsor by then mm-hmm. um, in World War II. So they, they, they fled to the south. They had a chateau that they rented in the south of France. And then they decided, okay, no, we have to get out of Europe. So they mm-hmm. travelled to, to Spain, which was supposed to be neutral, but obviously was hand in glove with the Nazis after the Nazis had helped them out in the Spanish Civil War. And then they arrived in Portugal. And the first thing Wallace worries about is her O'Donnell swimsuit that she absolutely (laughs) loves and somebody must go back into occupied France. Well, you know, the South isn't occupied, but, you know, Vichy France. It's hard to find a good swimsuit, though, I will (laughs) say. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, you know, it matched her eyes. (laughs) Meredith is getting right now. <laughs> Those famous, famous blue eyes. And so mm-hmm. she, they decided that the Americans would have to send it over in a diplomatic bag. And Gosh. these were their concerns when everything, you know, Poland was being raised to the ground and, and yeah. Britain was preparing to fight a battle that, you know, they were pretty much alone in. So, yeah, it it was a very skewed sense of values. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask you, Christine, with writing this book, was there something you read or a nugget of a character or something that started this whole book? Like, what, where was that starting point for you? Well, I actually really wanted to write about Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo. I'd read these Amelia 
Peabody mysteries, you know, for years and years. And they were so fabulous. And they it was about an archaeologist in Egypt. And they always stayed at Shepherd's Hotel. And I looked into it and all of these famous people would stay there, you know, Mark Twain and Winston Churchill and Rita Hayworth and the Aga Khan. It was just this, it was one of the first luxury hotels in the world. And Egypt was a real holiday resort for people from colder climates in the in Europe and even America. They would come and spend the winter in Egypt and they would stay at Shepherd's Hotel. Yeah. And so then it just sort of grew from there. I knew about the Windsors and then this connection yeah. with the Windsor mistress who had been in Egypt and stayed at Shepherd's Hotel. And then it all started, you know, it just sort of drew from all of these things that I already knew about but managed to put it into yeah. a story together. I love that entry point. Yes. I love that. I love hearing that. Because, I mean, that's like a character in itself, the hotel, you know, and, you know, Egypt. And one of the other things I have done on here is how you're able to talk about colonialism in the book. And mind you, it's not like a plot line, you know, not to give too much away. There's no big, like, speech about it or something. But you show it so well how it's always this kind of background character, though, and how these, you know, white people from different economic backgrounds and, of course, some of these people are Aristos and stuff, how they think about colonialism in the 30s and what is their relationship with it. And I wanted to read one of this line because it cracked me up. And I feel like it's just a really great example of how you talk about it. It's this conversation happening with Lady Grayson. So he says, Cleo, this is Brody talking. Cleo's one of the one with the ear for languages, said Brody. She even speaks a little Arabic. Does she? Lady G seemed unimpressed. In that case, you will endear yourselves to our host. There's nothing more ignorant than going to a foreign country and expecting the inhabitants to speak English. Brody regarded Lady G for a long moment, then returned his gaze to the scenery. Very true. I just have to say, am I right when I'm saying Brody was being shady? (laughs) Yeah. Brody's Scottish, so he knows all about British colonialism. Yeah, so what he is saying is, you come to Egypt all the time and you don't know any Arabic. Exactly. (laughs) And yet, when we go to France, it's polite to speak French. He said, he's like, Cleo, you're staring like, what is it, a a colonial? (laughs) It's like cracking up. I really, yeah, I liked how you wove that through. It was just so well done. Again, like making sure you're taking these very real situations and stuff like that and putting it into this world. It was just so well done. And obviously we have to talk about a big component here, the jewels, the jewelry, you guys. Oh, okay. oh my gosh. The descriptions are like candy in this book. I was constantly <laughs> Googling, looking for these photos and everything and just like, oh, wow. But also what sticks out to me was just like the money. Okay. Like. Do you think Edward really had all that money? I mean, I know he's a duke and a future king, but I'm just like, he loved jewelry and obviously he loved giving Wallace jewelry. But I'm like, is there really that much money in the world? Am I, I know I'm poor to these people, but geez. (laughs) Yeah, it, it sort of, it does boggle the mind. And I think it was a combination of getting loans from people and not actually paying for the things they 
because, you know, it was such a privilege to serve the royals that, you know, what you, you mean you want us to pay? I wasn't saying how do you ask the royals? I mean, I need you to pay my loan or pay the loan. (laughs) How does that happen? Yes. And there was actually a bit of a shady French Man who was hand in glove with the Nazis? Who? Oh, do you mean Charles hosted. Charles Bordeaux or something? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. And, and so he oh. even hosted their wedding and would lo- lend them money because you know I guess there was a bit of political move maneuvering in there because Hitler actually liked the British. He thought that their values were aligned with his, and I think he really loved the royal family too, the idea of this. So what he wanted was to set up Edward VIII as his puppet king and and Wallace's queen. And because Edward VIII was so in love with Wallace, I think the idea of her being queen was so you know, attractive to him. Uh, and he really wanted to be involved in a political way, which the royal family is not supposed to be. They're supposed to be completely neutral, not make any political statements whatsoever, because that's not, you know, they, they were taken, they were removed from that role mm-hmm. <laughs> by Magna Carta. <laughs> so, so, you know, they're, they're, they're actually not supposed to dabble in politics. But he wanted to do that. He didn't want to cut ribbons and things like that. Yeah. He wanted to get in and express opinions. So the other interesting thing about you, Christine, is that you're a lawyer. I mean, what can what can't you do? <laughs> what can't you do? I Doing tell you everything. what, I can't do law anymore. That was, that was twenty years ago. <laughs> I've forgotten everything I knew. No, uh, no, I'm really interested in the law, and uh, a lot of those aspects inform the books. I mean, there's a court case in this book, and, yes. and so forth. But yeah, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I was wondering how being a, a lawyer really helped inform and write the book. I mean, I guess from just a research you know, standpoint, you know, yes. that probably those skills probably helped, I'm assuming. But I'm also just wondering more about where where does the history stop and the fiction begin in historical fiction? It's always a question for the author, really, I think, because some authors, you know, like Bridgerton is just so... It's a fantasy as yes. well as, I mean, the books that Julia Quinn wrote were based on history, but they were also completely a lovely fantasy to step into. And then there are there are obviously people who take the history and twist it, or then further along is somebody like me who takes real people and, and might fictionalise a little bit to fit with the story, but n- nothing... I never do anything major that really I, I'll never change the timing of a, a big world event or anything like that to, to suit my story. I try to fit it around. And, you know, there are some people who just say, oh, I want to write about Wallace Simpson and so they just write what they imagine it would have been like without much regard for the actual historical events that happened. So there's a there's a real spectrum and I think it, really depends on what you want and what you're prepared to, you know, historical accuracy is subjective anyway. So yeah, yeah, it's all up to the author, I think, and what the readers enjoy. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, I feel like they would really enjoy this because I know for me, I was so excited to see what was, you know, facts and what was fictional. Like when you're giving the description of Wallace Simpson's engagement ring, 
I don't like we're just getting into her for our Patreon we're going to be doing later. So I've kind of stayed a little ignorant to doing more and more research. So I'll, I'm seeing this description. I'm like, wait, this this again. I'm like, this can't be real. Like, this is just too much. And looking it up and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this all actually happened. <laughs> and there there are really, really good moments like that. But even more of um, what I really like, Chloe, obviously, she's a fictional character in some of her story and stuff. But. I just, I wanted to shake her sometimes, but most of the time I wanted to cry with her. <laughs> and I don't know, I just love to know more about like your feelings towards Chloe and your inspiration behind her. Cause you know, she's one of the main characters and really she just, she's great cause she's not perfect, but gosh, you love her. I just want to snuggle her. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I had this vision of her being quite young at the start and, and she really grows throughout the novel. Yes. So I had to think about what does a 16-year-old do in this situation and maybe she can be a little bit bulletigate and doesn't think too much before she acts at the start of the yes. novel and I <laughs> hope very much that when you want to shake her, you do love her as well because uh, she, she really is the heart of the book, I yeah. think. And obviously the the courtesan, which we'll probably get into later, is is a much harder character because she's had to live through such hard times. So yes. very big contrast between the two and I was very conscious of that, that with Cleo we're, we're just really following her story and her quest to find out who her real father is. And hopefully we, we love and, and cry and laugh with her <laughs> along the way. <laughs> yeah, I would love to get into the, the courtesan. And, and I guess that's where, I mean, we know historically, Edward got around, around yes. the whole world. He just spun <laughs> that globe. And it is, you know, presumably he would have, you know, discreetly found you know, women who you could pay for this to, you know, for sex to in, engage in it in that manner. And so I found it so interesting the way we brought in the courtesan and then also all the, the way the jewels are another character in the book. And I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Well, the jewels were such a serendipitous connection because I'd been reading about Cartier. That's yet another of my obsessions. So Cartier mm, is one of the same girl. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd read all about their history and then the jewellery kept popping up. It was, it really was the case that Marguerite, the courtesan in this book, built her wealth by accepting jewellery from gentlemen because there was this sort of unspoken thing that you, as a as a really high class courtesan, I mean, she was consorting with princes and industrialists from all over the world you did not get paid in cash (laughs) because that was you know tawdry and vulgar you got paid in jewels because that was a gift (laughs) but of course that was how she built her wealth and from the from the opening scene she is obsessed with building her wealth through jewels and that is her identity and then of course Cleo wants to make jewels become a become a designer of jewels and so that carries through and then of course Wallace is obsessed with jewels and has this very deep connection with Cartier because Cartier designed so many of the love tokens between Wallace and Edward VIII. Wallace had a bracelet of crucifixes that was was a present for the wedding 
she gave Edward VIII the cigarette case that had plotted on it in jewels all of the destinations they'd travelled to together. So it was gold and it was, you know, etched with the, the map and then it had a little ruby for, you know, wherever they'd been. So all of this just, it, when you're writing, it's just so magical when mm-hmm. that all comes together and you never planned it, but it just becomes this th- this motif that just keeps repeating. So I really brought that out in the book. I love that. And, and just quickly speaking about the, like where this, like, did you know from the beginning where everyone was going like to the end or did, do things change as they go around or did you just have the beginning and then you kind of saw through the characters where things were, were leading? Cause there is a delicious twist that we are not going to give away here, but y'all need to read the book. You need to read the book yeah. to hear it. <laughs> Text after that um, one. <laughs> I'm going to try. I, I'm really bad with spoilers, so I'm going to try not to give a spoiler. The way I write historical fiction tends to be plotted according to the historical events. So I knew a certain thing had to happen at the end, and I knew various plot points along the way because I knew Edward VIII only did one debutante presentation yeah so he he was only king for less than a year and that was the presentation Cleo had to be presented at which then dictated when how old she was and you know when I could start the book and that had her birth had to fit in with the affair that that Edward VIII had had during World War One oh, with Marguerite yeah. the courtesan so you know all I have all these fence posts but I'm not always sure how I'll get there and I'm not always sure who did what or you know so yes I know some things that that are you know set in stone because of the history but yes the rest I make up as I go along yeah and one again I know I keep going back to the jewels but again they're so important and they're so beautiful and glittery <laughs> and I don't know if you mentioned this, but what I found myself too by the end of the book, especially is thinking about, you know, Margaret and like Wallace and stuff, and just how these women obviously come from very different, you know, demographics and so on, and they're treated very differently by this world. You know, Margaret is a sex worker, and Wallace is this beautiful Harris that men would marry, not just have as a mistress, even though she has two divorces. But all of it, like the center of this, though, is all of them seem to need men, you know, because they need to live. These jewels are their money. It's how they have a home. It's how they eat. It's how they have help. And I don't know, like, I, did you kind of mean to kind of show those rope? There's like, yes, one is a sex worker and one is a Harris. But at the end of the day, so many of these women during this time had to rely on men. And let's be real, like how they could attract men to live. Yeah, that that is very true. And I think Wallace's appearance is quite deceptive because she was married to Mr. Simpson, of course, and they weren't doing too well when she came to meet Edward VIII. So she thought she was hitching her wagon to a star and then he turned out to be. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the, the theme of the book, if there is one, is that you need you've got the independent women who decide 
twos that they're going to rely on themselves and you've got these other two who are always looking for the next man to to provide for them when in today's world they would be very capable of having their own careers but at the time and of course marguerite you know pregnant at 15 kicked out without a reference she in those days she had very little choice about what she would do and she you know by grit and by determination she climbed that ladder you know she started out on the street Unfortunately, we had some audio export issues during this episode, but thankfully you got to hear the entire interview with Christine Wells. She was a delight. She even did the little pinkies up with us at the end. So remember, The Royal Windsor Secret by Christine Wells drops September 12th, 2023. You can also find Christine on social media. She is on Facebook as Christine Wells Author. You can find her on Instagram at Christine Wells underscore. And you can also find her over at Twitter or Meta or whatever they're calling themselves today, Christine Wells Zero. You can, of course, find Lady Audacity on Instagram and TikTok at Lady Audacity, T-E-A. If you have questions, comments, concerns, you can reach out to us at ladyaudacity at gmail.com. Until next time, pinkies up. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.